Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. 18 plus can now get vaccinated in hotspots. How is your head during COVID-19? How can we change the culture in Canada's military? It's coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. It's another week and another reason to celebrate what we do have, a very close relationship with our mask. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! With backing vocal from the dog, I might add. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Lots of ways to do it. Love to have you. Will, can you uh, run that report? Uh, here's uh, uh, the latest from Rick Zamprin on where we are as far as uh, vaccine rollout in the hammer. It's being called a significant expansion of Ontario's COVID-19 vaccine eligibility, thanks to an expected boost in supply from Pfizer-BioNTech. It means the people 18 and older in Hamilton's five hotspot postal codes can book an appointment at a large-scale or mobile pop-up vaccination clinic. Those living in the postal codes L9C and L8W can book an appointment using Ontario's online portal and Public Health's COVID-19 hotline, while adults in L8L, L8N and L9K can only use the city's hotline. On Thursday, the eligibility will expand further to include residents 50 and older, those with high-risk health conditions, and people who can't work from home, including teachers and school workers. Rick Samprin, 900 CHML News. Let's bring in Michelle Baird, Director of Operations for Public Health Services with the City of Hamilton and is with us now. Michelle, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Yep, things are good. So uh, from what we understand, it looks like supply is, uh, is increasing throughout the month of May. Uh, how does this change uh, y- your perspective? How does this change uh, what you're implementing? And, and uh, what does this mean, mean for the month of May for Hamilton? Yes, yeah, so for the month of May in uh, Hamilton with respect to vaccine supply, I think that this does bring a sense of optimism to our community for sure. We are now seeing that we are in a place where we have a stable and reliable uh, vaccine supply for this week, which is uplifting for our vaccine rollout for sure. Uh, The good news for our community, of course, every vaccine administered is a step towards reducing COVID-19 transmission. And we are still in a place in Hamilton where we have high numbers of cases and outbreaks occurring. So overall, this is great news for us. Uh, and we've heard that there's been a pause in the Johnson & Johnson. Does that affect our rollout at this point? So locally for us, Johnson & Johnson, of course, we were optimistic to receive the vaccine. However, the vaccine clinics we have planned, both our large-scale clinics and our mobile clinics to date, we are not relying on Johnson & Johnson in our supplies. So for us, it doesn't slow down our rollout in any way. All right, so let's talk about getting vaccination in Hamilton and what has changed as of today with 18+. plus. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yes, so for today, any adult who is 18+, plus and lives in our five priority neighbourhoods, and that's those postal code areas we've talked about, so the L9C, L8W, L8L, L8N, and L9K neighbourhoods are eligible for uh, to book their vaccine. 
So they can call the hotline at the city. It's 905-974-9848, and it's option 7, and you'll be able to book a vaccine if you're 18-plus in those neighbourhoods. And those areas, Scott, are the areas where um, there's been just a disproportionate impact with respect to COVID, so we really are trying to enhance our efforts to get vaccine uptake in those neighbourhoods. And then again on Thursday this week, uh, in alignment with the provincial direction, community members in the whole city who are 50 years of age and over, um, individuals with high-risk health conditions, or people who can't work from home who are in that first group one of the provincial framework, and that does include those remaining elementary and secondary school staff, they're eligible to book a vaccine. So lots of optimism with respect to rollout this week. And we've been getting some calls in regard to technical issues around the phone numbers and the numbers to call. Uh, any, any, anything you want to add to that? Obviously, there's a, there's a, uh, a high uh, call volume here. We can expect that. But we've heard stories of people being hung up on and all that sort of thing. Anything you can tell us there? So what I can say is overall, the hotline, of course, continues to have call volumes that are exceptionally high, as you know, uh, particularly on those first couple days when the bands of eligibility open up, we tend to have a high call volume. There are lots of vaccine appointments left, so I would ask that people um, be patient, of course, and, and try back. We know that community members overall are feeling anxious and fatigued and People are worried about the pandemic and eager to book a vaccine. So we're just asking that you be kind, be respectful, and be patient. The hotline is open all week. It opens, it's open until 8 o'clock in the evening. So if you want to try a little later in the day, that certainly might help. Um, for those who are eligible to book online, so if you are, uh, if you have a health card number and you're in the higher eligibility groups, the online booking tool will work as well. And other words, otherwise, I would just say be patient. I know people are hearing that they're getting hung up on. What's actually happening is we do have staff. The phone lines are fully uh, staffed, of course, and there is a queue. But once the queue is full, um, the line just cuts you out, unfortunately. But I would just say either call back later today, give us a call tomorrow. There are appointments available and you will get a chance to book your vaccine. And we should really emphasize, and, and, you know, I'd heard this from the pharmacist that gave me my a, uh, AZ jab a while ago, the same thing that when these, um, when the, when the eligibility drops and, and initially they start a new, uh, a new age group or a new focus or, or hotspot or what have you, that the, the, the demand just goes through the roof and then it slowly starts to level out again. But I, I guess every time they drop those, uh, lower the criteria, then obviously there's a mad dash. Yes, and that's what we've been seeing basically weekly. Every time those eligibility bans open, that's when the mad dash occurs. I think the other so thing I would what, say with fo- oh, go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Please go ahead. Yeah, the other thing with phone line. So yes, they are busy, and yes, I know people are eager to get appointments. The other piece I would say is the phone line right now is booking AstraZeneca vaccine clinics for May 6th to the 13th with our primary uh, care partners for anyone that is 40 plus. So again, another opportunity to get a vaccine booking. Uh, anything on the AstraZeneca? We had heard that the supplies had been slowing down. Is there still enough there to, to keep these uh, clinics functioning? 
So the AstraZeneca supply does slow down for us as we go through May, but right now we have supply in our community to offer those clinics May 6th to the 13th, lots of supply to do that for anyone 40 and over, and certainly encourage you to book one of those appointments if you're eligible. Um, As we've been saying, as soon as you become eligible, that first vaccine you're eligible for, we would certainly encourage you to take that opportunity. All right. Give us a little bit of a, a breakdown of how, how Hamilton is doing today, uh, where we are as far as uh, uh, cases, ICU. Uh, we had heard earlier last week that uh, we're still climbing, but things are, are starting to level out. What are you seeing, Michelle? Yes, so I don't have the numbers right here in front of me, Scott, but I will say that coming into the end of last week and now, we do believe that perhaps we're starting to plateau, Um, not saying our numbers aren't high. They certainly are incredibly high still. And we're still seeing outbreaks within community settings, workplaces among those folks who can't work from home. So still encourage you that, you know, following public health measures, staying at home um, whenever possible, keeping um, two meters from other people, that kind of thing is still incredibly important. Um, And, you know, people are starting to get the vaccine and we know that pandemic fatigue is high, but definitely the public health measures are still important in our community. On the plus side, on the vaccine side of things, um, as of today, you'll see our website will be updated and we're Right now, somewhere just shy of 197,000 people in Hamilton have received at least one dose of vaccine, which is great news for our community. Uh, we heard those numbers uh, at the end of last week that uh, by the end of last week, 40% of uh, adults in Ontario would have at least had their first shot. Uh, are you concerned, Michelle, that people get that first shot? It's woohoo, you know, happy days are here again. I mean, we have to stress the protocol still has to be in place. Absolutely. I think that people get their first dose of vaccine, and this is certainly a moment of excitement for many and something we've been waiting for for months and months. And definitely people are pleased to have that happen. But at this point in time, uh, remember, it is a two-dose vaccine and that we're still in a place with um, significant community transmission. So adhering to those measures is still the most important piece for all of us. How, uh, with, with now uh, going into these hotspots, 18 plus, uh, those those postal codes that you mentioned, how optimistic are you you can make a dent? Uh, is there hesitancy there? Is, is it going to be difficult uh, to, to get the vaccines delivered in those area codes? Um, so there's, there's hesitancy, of course, in pockets everywhere, and we're doing what we can to address those within these postal codes. Um, Right now, we're bringing clinics directly into those postal codes, specific for people who live there. We're also offering opportunities, um, you know, opening slots in our large-scale clinics. And I would say, Scott, all of those appointments are booking up, and people are really eager within those postal codes to get vaccine, as uh, as they are elsewhere in the city. So at this point, it's good news for us. I said area codes, of course. I meant postal codes. We don't need to confuse us anything more. Postal codes. Uh, what about what, what about biggest challenge at this stage of this, Michelle? What's the biggest challenge for the city at this point? I think the biggest challenge at this point is what we always already talked about. It's just the challenges with booking. 
that, you know, it is a bit complicated. Some folks are eligible through the provincial tool, others through the phone line. And so I think there's some challenges there. And, you know, you spoke to it yourself. The frustration with managing the call volume on the line has been challenging as well. So as we have the opportunity to open more and more clinics, um, you know, the technology piece is still playing out for us to some degree. And so we're just asking for patience and we are trying to be patient as well. With these larger deliveries that are now set to come in through this month, uh, will your vaccination facilities be working at full capacity yet? Yeah, so at this point in time, you'll know that none of our large-scale clinics, we have three of them in Hamilton, and none mm-hmm. are at full capacity just yet. Within the city, we do have the ability to move to uh, upwards of 10,000 doses a day, and although we're not there, we will definitely see our clinics ramping up over the, patent, over the past, over the next couple of weeks, given where we are with supply, which is also great news for us. The other piece I guess I'd say around there is it also allows us to... Um, provide more vaccine through these targeted sites with our community partners, through mobile opportunities, things like that. So you're definitely going to see that the opportunities will scale up. Michelle, any idea what it's going to look like when we all have to line up again for the second dose? Right. So second dose vaccines, of course, is um, coming as we come into the summer. And right now, individuals have their second dose appointments already. I think the piece that will be different, Scott, is that people, because they have that appointment, this race to get through and book and things like that will be quite reduced. So hopefully it's a bit of a smoother process for individuals because they already know where their appointment is. What advice do you have for those that are still searching, still looking for that appointment? I I would definitely say be patient. Don't give up. Keep trying. Um, If you're trying to get through on the hotline, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday is a better day to get through. Do use the provincial booking tool wherever possible. And like I said before, take whatever opportunity comes your way with respect to vaccine. All right, Michelle Baird with us, Director of Operations for Public Health Services with the City of Hamilton. Michelle, thanks for the time. As always, much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Yes, you too. Thanks, Scott. All right, so uh, good news uh, again. As uh, we get into the month of May, uh, third day of May today, uh, obviously more and more vaccines coming in. Two million this week. That's supposed to continue through next week and right through uh, the month of May as we gradually uh, ramp up the amount of uh, vaccines uh, that are coming into the country and then, of course, allow us to fully operate uh, these vaccination clinics to their maximum capacity. Right now, in the hot spots, 18 plus uh, can book an appointment uh, uh, as of today. And uh, as of Thursday, uh, 50 plus through the, uh, through the provincial uh, booking uh, portal. Commentary is coming up. On our COVID-19 vaccination front, this should be the best week so far for Canada. The month of May is supposed to start the beginning of mass weekly deliveries as promised by the Prime Minister. This five months after the vaccines initially arrived on Canadian shores, and most jurisdictions have not had enough vaccine to even keep their vaccination clinics operating above 50% for months now. With the mass vaccine set to arrive, provinces including Ontario have directed up to 50% of that new vaccine to hotspot communities. 
But as you can imagine, that sets off even more debate as to who is getting what first. Once again, yet another debate we must have because we simply do not have enough of the life-saving vaccines arriving in a timely manner. Once again, Justin Trudeau smiles towards his majority election win while the provinces are stuck and left to tackle the predicament the Prime Minister has left the country in. A shortage of vaccines due to the bad decisions he made one year ago. I'm Scott Thompson. 12.2% of COVID-19 tests in Hamilton are coming back positive, surpassing the previous high of 11.3%. The reproductive number has dropped below one, which means the overall number of new cases is decreasing. There are 38 active outbreaks, the latest at Hamilton Fire Department Station 12 and State Group Incorporated. More than a third of the city's outbreaks are in workplaces, and nearly 30 of them involve one of the variants. Just over 3,000 cases of the B117 variant have been found in Hamilton, and 1,019 have screened positive as a variant, with three cases of P1 from Brazil and two cases of the South African variant confirmed in the city. 152 people are being treated for COVID-19 in Hamilton hospitals. Lisa Paleski, 900 CHML News. Good news is the supply of vaccines uh, over the month of May is increasing. Uh, Two million doses this week, and it's still going to uh, continue uh, as the month progresses, allowing more and more, at least a more continuous uh, stream of vaccination. Not quite operating at full capacity yet, but certainly uh, making great strides. And in the hot spots, uh, especially in the uh, Hamilton areas uh, under certain uh, postal codes, 18 plus uh, can now register uh, for uh, an appointment. And as of Thursday, the provincial uh, portal goes down to 50 years of age. So we are slowly moving ahead, which is great news. Let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert, and he is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts on where we are uh, this Monday, uh, May 3rd, uh, as we've talked in the past, it seems that we're, we're certainly slowing the rate of uh, increase down. Your thoughts on where we are today? Well, I think there's great news about the vaccines. It seems like the province and the country overall is being very aggressive in its approach to vaccination after the much pressure they were under both provincially and federally to make sure that people who want to get the vaccine are able to get it. And so I think that we're looking positive in the sense that, you know, there are talks now about further supply of Pfizer vaccine in the next coming weeks with 2 million doses uh, a week, which is fantastic news. I think that we're hearing also people are able to register for the vaccine in Ontario today, where 18 plus individuals are able to live in hotspots to be able to get the vaccine, which is incredible news. So I think overall, we're going to hear more and more reports of people being able to get vaccinated. Right now, what we need to really be thinking about is what about the second dosage? And when can we start, you know, looking at uh, making sure that people who got the first dose are now getting their second dose of the vaccine? Uh, With this latest shipment that's coming in, certainly for the next two weeks anyway, 50 percent of that uh, of the vaccine coming in will be delegated to those hot spots. Will, Will that make a dent? Will we see a difference? Yes, it will, because according to the evidence, COVID-19 has hit the hotspots the hardest. And so they've spread the fastest in those hotspots, but also that individuals from those hotspots and families and communities have struggled the most because of COVID-19. I mean, that's a fact based on the evidence that we've seen so far about the trends from COVID-19 transmission in those communities. So by virtue of vaccinating those communities, making them a priority, essentially what we're doing is reducing the number of cases in the community, but also reducing the spread of the virus in the future.
Uh, with uh, with fifty percent of these being uh, delegated to hotspots, are you are you concerned that we are hitting those hotspots? Are we are we sure we're going to make a, a difference by doing this? Well, this is exactly why. For example, this morning I was in conversations with Regent Park, which is one of the hotspots in Toronto's community center, to figure out how can we make sure that now that we know that there is going to be availability of vaccine, are people getting vaccinated in those hotspots? The last thing you want to happen is the supply of vaccine being available, but the individuals who live in those hotspot communities not actually getting the vaccine for yeah. many reasons. Number one being that they're having difficulty accessing information about how to get the vaccine. So we need to make sure that communities within those hotspots and leaders within those hotspots are actually stepping up and making sure that the people who live in those communities understand where they can get the vaccine and actually help them in trying to secure it. Because the thing is, Scott, is that if you live in a hotspot and you're listening to me right now, you probably know this uh, as a matter of fact, is that it's been difficult for people to actually secure the vaccine uh, just to figure out how to book. You know, people have been waiting in line for hours online uh, in hopes of getting the spot. And once they're actually in the system, the, the available time slots have been gone. And so they have to go back and forward. And it led to a lot of frustration that you can see it all over social media and just by speaking to people in the community. That's one fold. The other thing, Scott, that we need to be aware of is that, you know, some people still are not sure about the safety of the vaccine. And so mm. it's going to be very important that we continue to disseminate knowledge about why the vaccines are safe and why it's important for people to have them, whether it's through town halls or by just reaching out to individuals in those communities. Uh, are you concerned about uh, hesitancy still? Um, obviously, J&J was supposed to be on its way, and now they've paused that for uh, some reexamination. Um, again, it, does, does that hesitancy confuse people? Well, yeah, because Johnson & Johnson, to be clear with everybody listening to us, Health Canada has decided to pause and to examine further what's going on with Johnson & Johnson. We're still going to get the shipment, but the distribution of it is being paused currently. And the reason for that is that there have been reports of uh, contamination uh, at the facility that produces Johnson & Johnson in the U.S. And the FDA, which is our equivalent of the Health Canada we have here, has decided to actually find them, to give them violations for some issues within their facility, which prompted Health Canada to pause until until they review that evidence to make sure it is safe for us. And so that's reassuring for us Canadians that Health Canada is doing its due diligence and that, you know, whatever vaccine we get in our communities, we tend to have very strict regulations and very, very thorough examination of drugs and vaccines that are distributed within our country, which is very reassuring to people who might be hesitant around the safety of those vaccines. That basically what I'm trying to say here is that you know, you, you won't be offered a vaccine that has major questions about its safety and efficacy uh, within our, our population. So I, I foresee that in the future, uh, you know, as long as we address the issues around vaccine hesitancy, that anybody who wishes to get a vaccine will have his questions answered, him, their questions answers about the safety of the vaccine, and actually they're able to get it when they want to. So uh, shed some light on this for us, doctor. What is, so this has been paused, uh, and as you said, they're doing more research on this. What are they trying to uncover? What will they uncover? Um, and, and is there something there that may make them extend this pause? Could there be something there that they might say, you know what, this isn't right, we're going to ship it back? Well, I think what they're trying to figure out is, you know, having the federal government, federal agency in the U.S., looking into Johnson & Johnson's supply and saying that, you know, there might be an issue there with some contamination. And, and to be clear here, like, they've actually went ahead and fined them. So the, the U.S. 
have looked into Johnson and Johnson said with specific batch with specific facility there is a little bit of a concern there that we need to look into it so it's not a concern for us right now only by virtue of the fact that we haven't really received those vaccines yet and we haven't really rolled them out uh, and I'm sure that the government will make a very clear statement once they've conducted their thorough research onto what exactly happened uh, whether we actually end up you know resuming our efforts with Johnson and Johnson but at the moment they're just pausing it to look further into it. Uh, let's talk about hospitals and ICU capacity. Where we are, where are we today? Uh, are we seeing some relief there yet? Well, I think that by virtue of increasing our vaccination plan, we're going to see that the strain in our health system will decrease over time. Are we in the clear yet? No. I think that the variants are, are, are shaping to be a much more serious conversation, one that we have anticipated. So it's not really a surprise for many of us that the variants will take a hold, hence why we're in a third wave. And we might actually be in a fourth wave. It all depends about how fast we can vaccinate the communities that need to get vaccinated and how good we are in staying the course. I mean, you know, this is critical period because those variants are, are scary. I mean, look at India, Scott. I mean, you, you hear the mm. news about India and you just your heart is just broken over how a system is completely collapsed. I mean, if we want a, a learning lesson about what the worst case scenario might look like, you know, we're hearing pleas from India, people don't have oxygen, triaging patients based on what they can actually provide life-saving treatments for. It's quite, quite drastic. Uh, obviously, with the, the tragedy that India is going through, uh, are they getting enough vaccine? Are they getting enough supply? Obviously, they're referred to as the world's pharmacy. Are they getting what they need? No, they're not. And so this is a very excellent point you to raise here. So part of the narrative that you're going to hear a lot about is whether Ottawa, and by here I mean the federal government, will be donating some of our, our supplier vaccine to countries like India who desperately need it. And the federal government has made a decision not to do that right now because they're still trying to figure out how much we need in our country. We must remind the public that Canada is the number one purchaser of vaccine. We're mm-hmm. the number one country in the world that purchased or made agreements uh, for having vaccine. There will be a time in Canada where you and I will be talking about what are we going to do with the millions of doses of vaccine that we still have, that yeah. we don't need anymore. Uh, but that conversation is happening now because we're seeing examples of India where they desperately need the vaccines and countries around the world, including the U.S., have actually stepped up and said we will donate as many as we can. However, the, the, it's very important to say this one point is that it's not just about the supply of vaccine. Like we can wake up right now tomorrow and say we're going to give India 10 million doses of AstraZeneca, whatever vaccine is available. The question is, can they distribute it? Do they have the capacity to distribute the vaccine to a country that has millions of populations, close to billions? So like, it's a big population. It's very hard to distribute the vaccine. And so there's going to be a question about distribution in those countries. And actually, according to the World Health Organization, countries around the world that are low, low countries, low income countries, will not be able to vaccinate the majority of the population until 2023 or 2024. Um, and that's why that's relevant to us Canadians. If you're trying to look for that link, is because I've always said it repeatedly, as long as there is one country anywhere in the world that still remains a hotspot, we're still in danger. COVID-19 is a global effort, not a domestic one alone.
Uh, obviously, we know uh, AstraZeneca produced in in India, and now obviously they're they're uh, keeping what they're making for themselves and to help them through this this tragedy. Uh, will we see the United States send uh, the mass amounts that they're sitting on? I guess still waiting for approval. Uh, it doesn't appear that the U.S. is going to need it. Uh, you know, at one point Canada was hoping uh, for a good portion of this, but do you think that will eventually end up in India? I think so. I think Joe Biden and his administration have made very clear statements that they are going to support India in its effort to secure more as many vaccines as possible. And they're doing so also with Canada. I mean, we're hearing right now that the Pfizer shipments that are coming to Canada are actually coming to the Michigan state in the U.S. I mean, that's yeah. never happened before because the Joe, Joe Biden administration was very clear that like they will not let any of the U.S. manufactured vaccines by Pfizer come to anywhere else in the country uh, outside of the U.S. They wanted to keep it for their citizens. But that narrative has changed. We know now that our Pfizer supply will now, no lo- as much of it as has come from Belgium, now it will shift and come from the U.S. Um, and so I think that's a very clear signal that the United States is looking into exporting which, uh, whichever vaccines they have that they're not using because they have been very aggressive in, in their vaccination plans. They've been able to vaccinate a good number of their population. And so they, I think they're at a place now where they can explore how they can support other countries because I think they understand the point I brought up earlier, which is that as long as there's one country in the world that's a hotspot, our borders and the way we think about COVID-19 and how we plan forward will always be in jeopardy. We need to protect everyone for everybody to be safe. Uh, we know that the AstraZeneca was a big part of the pharmacy rollout here as they started lowering uh, the age demographics. Obviously, Pfizer and Moderna have a, a little bit more of a logistical issue with the temperatures that they have to be kept at. And it was the uh, the AZ that allowed uh, this to get out into pharmacies and start doing uh, mass vaccinations through pharmacies and such. Uh, are you concerned with the shortage of AstraZeneca? What about those waiting for their second shots of AZ? Yeah, I mean, this is the big concern for me right now is that we don't seem to really understand when the second dosage is of people are going to be able to get them. I mean, people, when they go get the Pfizer right now or get any vaccine, they're getting an email from the ministry telling them when their next dose is expected. Some yeah. are getting that in August, some are getting that in September. However, they're being cautioned that depending on supply. What I suspect will happen is that given that we're having an aggressive amount of vaccines coming into our country in the next coming weeks, I suspect that as we you know, vaccinate at least half of our population with the first dose, the government will be shifting focus to getting the second doses out there. We're not there yet because we're still trying to get people vaccinated just for the first dose. However, there is a concern that there are people who've been vaccinated you know, in December um, and still mm. waiting for their second dose. That's scary because we want to know that how long is their vaccine actually effective. We've been hearing reports from Pfizer and AstraZeneca manufacturers that in order for us to protect people against the variants, they actually need both doses. Um, and so that shift in focus needs to happen now. And I critically urge the government to really look at the evidence and examine it to see that people who, especially our healthcare providers and essential workers, let's make sure they're protected against those variants. Wow, I'm just reading now, FDA may authorize Pfizer shot for 12 to 15-year-olds as Mm. demand uh, dwindles. That's in the United States, considering expanding eligibility. Your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are it's not surprising because, you know, we've looked at how they've expanded supply of the vaccine for pregnant women, and so children was only next. We already know that Pfizer has conducted trials 
about lowering the age. And so far, the results from preliminary trials have been positive about that. So it's only a matter of time. And what that means for us Canadians is that the minute the U.S. signals this kind of things, that means Health Canada would be looking at it for our own country. Um, and so we, we tend to follow suit after the U.S. has already sort of done their own due diligence. We do our own. But we usually, whatever the U.S. does is a signal for us to actually look into it. So I suspect that Health Canada is probably going to take this as a, as a prompt for them to start looking about expanding uh, coverage here in Canada. Uh, Ahmad, getting back to what you were saying earlier about uh, the second dose and such, what about mixing doses? I mean, are we going to be in a situation where perhaps there isn't the supply of whatever you were injected with the first time and may have to go with something the second time? Your thoughts on that? Well, the immunologists and uh, infectious disease experts and people who study the, the way the, vi- the vaccine works have said and indicated that a possibility of mixing and matching vaccines is possible. Uh, however, there is actually right now a massive clinical trial being conducted by Oxford universities and others who are looking into mixing and matching uh, the vaccine. So by that, I mean they're looking at if you get one dose of Pfizer, can you get another dose of Moderna, for example, and how would that look like? And the trial results so far have seen, shown that it is possible, which is great news because that means that we can actually you know, utilize our stockpile of vaccine that we'll eventually have in a very smart and effective manner that makes sure that as many people get as many of the vaccine as possible. Doctor, would that mean mixing all vaccines or just the type? Like, for example, the Moderna and the Pfizer, uh, both mRNA vaccines, those can be mixed. But can they mix with maybe mix with a standard uh, bio vaccine like a, a Johnson and Johnson or an AstraZeneca? Or do they have to sort of stay within their own wheelhouse there? Or does it matter? That's a great question. And the trial is actually looking at mixing it in different times. So AstraZeneca, which, as you know, you're, what you're trying to indicate here is that you know, AstraZeneca doesn't use the same technology as mRNA, which the mRNA technology that Moderna and Pfizer uses. It uses sort of the viral vaccine, which is the traditional methodology of creating vaccines. This trial that I'm speaking about is actually looking at mixing and matching AstraZeneca with also Pfizer and Moderna. So the idea here is to see is there compatibility and effectiveness and safety when you combine two different types. Logic says that it should be okay. However, you need the evidence in the trials to confirm that before any country will move forward on this. And, and I, I suspect that the trial results will come out in the next coming months, if not sooner. I was just about to ask you any timeline on that, because obviously time is of the essence here. Well, I mean, if, we, if anything has taught us through COVID is the timelines that we suspect are no longer the same as they were historically. So things that usually take years are now happening much faster only by virtue of having the mechanisms needed to push it forward. Doesn't mean that the safety is not there. Let me reassure everybody listening to us that, you know, that those clinical trials still adhere to the same safety mechanisms. The, the difference why we're, you know, we're able to make things happen faster is bureaucracy is reduced. So things that, you know, would sit on somebody's desk for weeks to look at now are being looked at with urgency. And so that's what's changing, not really the safety of how we're conducting them. Okay, here's a couple of listener questions. Are the MNR uh, RNA vaccines actually vaccines or are they gene therapy? Uh, this question has been debated multiple times. They're just they're using a different technology that, you know, we've been in the works for a very long time about how they create the vaccine. It's not necessarily gene therapy. It is just a different technology of actually creating that vaccine. So you're not using, you know, the AstraZeneca and others that use the traditional methods. They're using sort of the COVID-19 particle or vaccine to help generate an immune response. mRNA is using a different technology to generate that immune response. All right, one more. Is it considered immunity if the vaccine only has 85% efficacy? 
Yeah, so this is a big question about, it's very technical terminology. It's so funny to me uh, that, you know, the public now is so aware of the words efficacy and, mm. the, the you know, this is conversation that in the scientific yeah. world, you've never heard anybody talk about efficacy unless you're, an, uh, you know, an immunologist or somebody who's in charge of producing the vaccine. So uh, this is a very technical term, but it, it, to simplify it for everybody, when you hear 85, 75, 65, it's really irrelevant to us, the public, because it just, that's just talking about the way like when you measure it according to an average number of patients that have been tested in the trial. So for us, for you and I and the general public, what we should really be caring about is that, is it safe and is it effective? Will it protect me against the virus? Uh, and the answer is yes, it will. Now, the extent of how much it will protect you is different, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still providing you with protection, period. Dr. Ahmad Khalid with us, health policy expert, answering uh, lots of questions, as uh, he always does, and trying to clarify uh, and get us through a global pandemic. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, here we are, uh, week number 59 of uh, the Scott Thompson Home Show. We've all been experiencing this for uh, well over a year now. The good news is, uh, as the month of May uh, continues or starts off, we're May 3rd right now, uh, lots of vaccine uh, coming into uh, the country during the month, so uh, hopefully uh, speeding up the uh, vaccination process and uh giving uh, the majority of their Canadians of Canadians their first dose. Uh, but that being said, uh, we, we remember talking a, a lot about, my goodness, what is this all about during the first and second wave and how do we cope? But here we are uh, in the third wave well uh, over a year uh, into this global pandemic. How are you feeling and how have your feelings changed since perhaps the first and second waves? Let's bring in Dr. Peter B- uh, Beeling, uh, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University, vice president and director of mental health and addiction program at St. Joseph's Hospital, and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. I am. So how have things changed uh, at this point? What are you seeing now uh, this late into this pandemic that perhaps you weren't seeing as much of during the, f- the first or second waves? How, how, has, how has this changed for us? Well, I think as, as the pandemic wears on, we're seeing both in, in surveys uh, and in our referrals, um, more, more folks being referred, especially for, um, for, for urgent issues. Um, and I think uh, Canadians generally, when they're asked by, by telephone surveys as a population, are signaling that uh, it's, it's getting harder and harder for them, especially with, with the third wave. Uh, what do you mean about urgent issues? What's the difference between an urgent issue and one that is not? Uh, so it's basically uh, a, a referrer will, they, they may have multiple reasons for saying so, but they're, they're letting us know that this is somebody for whom uh, you know routine a routine weight is probably not a not a, not a good thing, hmm. um, and we know that that people are in fact um, struggling. Lots of other services uh, aren't aren't available right now, and I think we we all know what it's like to be in lockdown. That adds complexity to all of our lives, and even more so when you're already struggling with a mental health or addiction issue. So um, we are doing our best to, to, to keep up. We're, we're, we're open uh, here at St. Joe's, and, and most of the community mental health agencies are working really, really hard to keep up. Um, sometimes they're doing that in a virtual format, um, and sometimes they're able to do it in, in face-to-face. But um, it's, it's, 
it, you know, it's a, it's a completely unprecedented time socially. Um, and, uh, and, and I think we've always known that, you know, mental health and addiction issues aren't just biological uh, things that people have. The, the circumstances in which we find ourselves are hugely, hugely important. And these are troubled times indeed. Is it different from the first wave to the third wave? Uh, I'm sure many never thought it would go on or drag on this long. Yeah, I, 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 I think it is. Um, we saw a kind of general slowdown in, in referrals and people coming to us in the first and then into the second wave. I don't know if that was um, because people weren't accessing services or perhaps they were they were delaying their own care. Um, maybe they thought, you know, they could wait or wait this out. Um, there are, of course, people, you know, who, who would say, I don't really want to do, you know, psychotherapy virtually. I'd prefer to do it in person. And I think we would, too. Um, so maybe they put it off and, and, and now now they can't. And, you know, this third wave is different. The public health measures, they're badly needed, but um, they're a little bit more extreme even than we had, uh, I think, in, 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 you know, averaging out what happened in the first and second waves. Plus, we're also seeing what's going on in our ICUs. Um, and, you know, that's hard to bear witness to that, even if we're not mm-hmm. directly involved. Uh, and we're all, I guess, sitting there thinking, in a way, the best thing I can do is stay home and do nothing. But, y- you know, you wish you could you wish you could do more and you wish you could also um, do, do all the things that you miss doing, you know, uh, especially, I think, the interpersonal socializing stuff. Uh, 77% of Canadians uh, reporting some sort of negative impact. Are you surprised that number is so high? No, not at all. Not at all. I think, I think that uh, CMHA has done those surveys, uh, I believe, twice before, and this is the third one. So it's up a little bit from the second one. So you knew it wasn't going to go down because we're stuck in this third wave. Um, No, I mean, just just think about it. Everyone you know and love that you Zoom with, um, you know, are are more than three-quarters of those those people going to say, this is doing something? Yes. Uh, In fact, I think it's harder to think of somebody who would pop on a Zoom and say, hey, this is better or or, I'm fine. (laughs) You know, everyone's saying I'm I'm probably a little sick of seeing you on Zoom, but hey. (laughs) the best we can do right is it good to be going through this is it good to be feeling this way during this time i I, look i people talk about a thing which may strike some of your listeners and maybe even me as as pretty paradoxical which is you know uh, kind of post-traumatic growth that um you know when you're in the middle of it it's always going to be hard but as it ends and as it recedes, that you t- you take lessons from it uh, because it changed you in some way, and perhaps that's something along the lines of just being more appreciative of things that we used to take for granted, like going to somebody's house for a dinner party. You know, that'll now become a really resonant kind of a thing. <laughs> and maybe, just maybe, there are things that we've learned about you know how to be in our backyards in the winter time that. Uh, we think, well, that was that that was a good part, you know. So we we keep that, but you know, we're not going to not go to the mall, you know, because that's something that's now open to us again. So I think that it would be, you know, really perfectly normal to say that this is affecting you in some way. And it's also, I think, true that for many of us, as this ends and as we re-engage, I think we will start to feel better, and we might not 
you know, I don't think all Ontarians are going to need a mental health counselor. I think that we're resilient creatures, and I think as this ends, we will start to gradually feel better. But if you don't, get help, because there's lots of help out there. You bring up a, a, a very valid point that I wanted to touch on, and and that is how will this affect us coming out the other end? Uh, you know, I, I think you know with my own, with myself anecdotally, oh, this is not a problem. A few weeks of this, we'll be in and out, blah blah blah. The world will be back to normal. We'll never miss a beat. It's pretty hard to go through something like this as a society and not come out the other end uh, different. You called it post-traumatic growth. Um, what will we be like out the back of this? You know, I, I, I think it's, it's probably very different when you talk about different age groups. So of course I'd be worried about kids and and so would you, uh, who've been, you know, not able to really attend Mm -hmm. school in the way that, 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 that they normally would. Um, you know, they'll, 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 they'll remember this. Um, and so will we as all, all adults, but you know, uh, someone like me has had 51 years of being sort of one way, and I maybe now into this, you know, a couple of very different. I, I, my guess is that I'll be able to to bounce back, and I think many adults um, will be able to. Uh, for some people, though, um, they will get they they will get stuck on this. You know, it'll be hard for them. It'll be scary. Um, I think everyone has has this effect in in some ways. You know, when you're watching something on Netflix and you know, it's like visualizing a cocktail party or, or uh, a buffet dinner. You just think, oh, my goodness, that just looks so so scary and dangerous. And I think mm-hmm. uh, for some of us, it's going to be a struggle, you know, like just just go back, go back to normal. And normal is going to feel a little bit dangerous for a while. But it's but it's good to keep trying. Right. It's good to do things in, 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 in baby steps. And I think that the restrictions post lockdown will will kind of help us in that. Um, probably there'll be kind of circles of reopening that will expand our horizons slowly again, so that we so that we get used to it. But I think I think for some of the, from some of the kids, this is this is this is going to be hard because we all know that the, the two years between 13 and 15 are way more important mm-hmm. than the two years between 41 and 43. Yeah, and you think, you know, I, I remember uh, every September uh, when our kids were younger, we'd walk them to school every day. And uh, right. I, I remember uh, at the, you know, at the, I guess two years ago now, a little over a year ago, and thinking, you know, a lot of those kids starting don't know life without a mask. That's all they know. And uh, it, it's bizarre when you think about it, those changes or experiences that they had that'll be different or never got to have, whether it's a graduation, something like that. Yes, no, I, I think a lot of the sort of the time giver events have have really been stolen from us. Yes, we we create them in, in the Zoom world, but um some of those rites of passage and milestones, um, you know, you 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 really can't can't get them back. Um of course being preoccupied with what you've missed out on, you know, is something that I think we we'll all have to work on. We'll we'll have to accept the fact that um that this happened and, and, you know, uh, globally, um, there wasn't much that we could do about it. We had to, we had to do the best that we could under, under the circumstances. In that sense, going through this, um, is an event that, you know, other generations have, have, have faced too, you know, like, uh, like in, in wartime, right? All those sacrifices yeah. that had to be made. This was kind of our, our war to, to, to try to minimize our losses. 
Well, uh, the world was a very divisive place, still is in many aspects, uh, prior to all of this. Will this unite us? Does this make us more empathetic? As you said, uh, first crisis, uh, um, very much warlike. Uh, I've used the term first crisis of a privileged generation. Um, uh, will this unite us? Will we be different? Well, I, I hope so. I, you know, one of the things that it does is I think it, it knits the world uh, closer. And I, and I, it sounds absurd because, of course, we can't travel. Um, but I think that we, we, we see the, the, the close connections. Uh, I don't know if you remember what you felt like reading about, you know, this, this pneumonia in Wuhan and, you know, maybe it was in a wet market and you thought, uh, well, that's over there. That, that's kind of their problem, um, you know, and I wish them every success. Now we know, boy, how quickly those things are are connected. So I think, I, I hope we're a more global community. But the other thing I know for sure is that uh, from from where I sit and the people I get to talk to, uh, maybe this is a sea change for mental health in general. Because by having to withdraw ourselves from all these things that that keep our our mood buoyant, you know, and 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 keep us going, I think I think lots of People I talk to through my mask or on Zoom uh, are telling me that you know the, the 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 delicate balance that it takes to maintain our mental wellness is just so much more apparent, mm-hmm. and maybe people are much more forgiving now and understanding of, of of mental illness kind of struggles. You know that that it all hangs in a delicate balance, and it isn't worth much if you don't have that delicate balance. You know that that mm-hmm. that life is a gift. Um, but it doesn't take much for us not to feel that way about it, and that's an important thing to address. Are we aware how much this global pandemic in this last year has affected us? Are we aware of that? Uh, probably not. Not yet. I, 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 I would actually, my, my advice would be to kind of, um, you know, if you're going to be sort of like in the survey, and you say, how do you feel right now? You're probably going to say not great. I would say take a long view of that. Uh, you know, don't let's not panic about it. I am not a prognosticator, really, but but I know that we're we're no longer really months and months away from the end of this. We're now able to count this in weeks. Mm-hmm. That's very different than we were in November. So what I would say is that don't don't make too harsh a judgment of yourself and and where you're at, and uh, you know be be. Be patient. Recognize that the sacrifices you're making are making a difference. The curve is coming down. It will come down. We've got to stick with it. And then slowly let's let's make a commitment to, to, to rebuild what we have in our lives. Um, maybe make, I don't know, more careful decisions, you know, keeping in mind sort of post-traumatic growth. Maybe there's some things that will come back into our lives that we don't want to do anymore, right? That that now seem trivial or pointless. But those are important lessons as well. You bring up a very valid point because this has certainly, uh, well, necessary movement. That's about it. Whatever, whatever necessities you need, that's pretty much what you can do. Uh, we've certainly seen our schedules uh, change drastically. What what everyone does has changed in some form or another. Are, are, is this a time to step back and say, you know what, I need more of that in my life. I need less of this in my life. Uh, is that making us uh, realize what is truly important and what well, is fluff? Yeah, I, 
I, I would think I would think that it is, um, and I understand there'll be people listening going, "Wait a minute, I, I'm stuck. I'm you know I'm a prisoner in my in my house or in my yard. I want to get out and do things." I'd say absolutely do those things, but I but I think there's there's something that's going to happen that's going to be both an existential and a rational kind of like, okay, so now this is back. This opportunity to go do this thing is back. Do I re- do I really want to? You know, or was I sort of working on an automatic pilot before where I did. Mm. I did go to all these things, but you know, what do I? What do I miss? You know, and I think that that you can't do that kind of reckoning when uh, we're in lockdown restrictions, and you can't. But I think as things open up again, we should all be, you know, really thoughtful about what were those things that filled us, that nourished us, and 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 what were the things that you know for us were like depleting activities. You know, a rigmarole that you that you had to go through. Um, and you know some of that stuff has has dropped away, and that that probably does explain that 25% of people who say, "Hey, I'm I'm better," right? There's a I guess a cliche about uh, lockdown is good for introverts, you know, because it gets them out of having to do all those obligations that that really don't 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 fit them. You talked uh, earlier in this conversation about this uh, uh, being like a war. It, it's it's a war without the bombs, as my mother would say, who lived through the Second World War. Um, do you think this is something we're going to forget five years from now? Will this just be a distant memory, or will we be talking about this for generations with our kids and grandkids and their kids as, remember, COVID-19, the pandemic of 2020-2021? Yeah. Yeah. Prognosticators can look foolish, but at this point it's gone on long enough and been deep enough that I think I think it is going to be like like the war. I think that all of us living through this time will have a covid story and that other people yeah. will ask us about it. And that you know, we'll be asked what did what did you do grandpa during covid? Um because yeah. I I think it's going to yeah, had it gone for a few months. Uh and we kind of know that example from from SARS in 2003. I was in healthcare then. I thought that would make a big impact, um, and it did for a time, but it faded. I don't think this one's going to fade. And one positive thing to come out of this is it certainly seems to have drawn more attention towards healthcare and the people that are in this industry. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, it's it, it's always been true that in our town, in Hamilton, um, you know, twenty four seven there were you know ICU units with incredible staff working hard to like keep people as they might say who were trying to die from dying uh and now those units are about double the size and we have plans for maybe um another you know 10 or 25 percent as needed um it's incredible the work that those staff do and how hard it has been on them to to lose patients who you know i think we keep seeing this uh, doctors and nurses are saying this person was otherwise healthy, right? Yeah. Except that, well, they weren't because they had severe COVID. Um, but it, it it's going to hurt our hearts because we absolutely know, absent COVID, that person never, ever would have been here, right? And it was this preventable infectious disease, and we just couldn't prevent it in everybody. So that is heartbreaking. Dr. Peter Beeling with us, professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences, McMaster University, Vice President and Director of Mental Health and Addiction Program, St. Joseph's Hospital. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, certainly uh, lots of calls uh, in regard to uh, concern uh, with the Canadian military and ongoing uh, sexual misconduct that happens uh, in the Canadian military. Uh, it's been talked about. It's been it's been studied. And, and still, we seem to be uh, where we are. And not only that, uh, amongst the rank and file, but also with uh, top brass in the uh, Canadian military, including Jonathan Vance, who was promoted while uh, allegations uh, against him were uh, were coming forward. So uh, a situation that uh, certainly has been around for a while and it doesn't seem to be going away and there don't seem to be a lot of solutions uh, coming forward. There's now uh, allegations within the uh, 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 regarding the prime minister's office of when his uh, chief of staff, Katie Telford, knew about this, why she didn't tell the prime minister, uh, the prime minister uh, not aware that the allegations against Vance were a Me Too movement, or sorry, a Me Too moment uh, of such. Uh, now, uh, commander of the Canadian Special uh, Operations Forces uh, asked to, uh, has, has been told to step down as well. So it seems to be running rampant, and there doesn't seem to be any uh, solution in sight at this point except more chatter and more promise of review uh, farther down uh, the road which of course is what the government has decided to do and yet it was only a, a few years ago that a uh, another report came out with uh, basically the same sort of scathing accusations and and uh, and hope for change of some sort however that doesn't seem to be happening amplifying all of this is the prime minister's uh, office continually continue Continually promoting that they are a feminist government. We have a feminist uh, prime minister, uh, a feminist deputy prime minister, and and they will promote that at any step. However, when issues like this arise, uh, it seems that uh, everybody goes quiet. Let's bring in Dr. Leah West, assistant professor and associate director of administrations and recruitment at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Uh, Leah is a survivor of sexual misconduct in the military and has uh, reported her story with the New York. York Times in March and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for having me. What can you tell us about your experience in the military? Um, my professional experience in the military was for the most part very positive, but it was something that um, was very different from my male colleagues' experience. I was a female in the combat arms. I was an armored officer. I was always one of very few women around. And I always felt a little bit like I was an experiment, uh, always having to make sure I passed everybody's tests because, you know, I uh, certainly wasn't one that uh, was expected or necessarily always welcome. Uh, how how challenging is that uh, to be a female mer- uh, member of the Canadian Armed Forces? How does that prevent you from moving forward or even doing your job? So I don't know that it always is preventative, but I will say that it makes it harder. And I will caveat that my experience is probably very different from those of others. And all the branches in the military and all the units have varying degrees of success on this. Some have integrated and included women um, much better than others. In my experience, however, that was not the case. And, um, you know, it just... 
it made everything harder. Um, and it's already a really hard job to be a member of the combat arms and to be asked to make a lot of sacrifices. But then when you're also forced to contort who you are to conform to expectations of others about who you're supposed to be, um, try and fit in very much under the microscope all the time. There's a lot of double standards. Um, I think for women, just this heightened scrutiny just makes everything harder. And then when you add the unfortunate circumstances I faced where I was sexually assaulted by someone within my own unit and it wasn't dealt with appropriately, then you're asked to carry that additional burden on your shoulders while you're, while you're trying to do your job, which is a tough one. So obviously more obstacles in your view uh, being a female. Um, in my case, absolutely. And I know that that's true for a number of my friends and colleagues. How is it different in the military than general society? Is it possible to make that comparison? Yes. Um, and you may have heard this discussion of it's a different culture. And and it's true. The organization has its own culture. I don't think that's surprising to anyone to hear that the military has a different culture than, yeah. than you know, other major institutions. And it is one that, you know, puts forward this warrior-type ethos and has very set, uh, you know, a high set of standards in terms of expectations for people in terms of physical fitness, in terms of um, response in the face of adversity and, you know, stiff upper lip, conforming, conforming uh, with uh, chain of command and hierarchy. All of these things make it really hard to, uh, you know, speak out against bad behavior or even recognize behavior that's harmful because you're asked from day one to strip away much of who you are and reconform based on these into this culture. Um, and so you do that. And it took me a really long time before I, after I left the military to really reconcile with how much of myself I had kind of contorted and how much I'd accepted in order to fit within the military. And some of that valuable and necessary, some of it harmful. Is that gender specific or is that something that, the, like you said, the culture of the, that's the culture of the military? Or are you specifically talking about gender? I think everyone has to contort themselves to an extent and conform. Mm -hmm. And it is harder for some who don't naturally fit into the ideals than others. And it's not just women. It can also be men or racialized individuals, people who have certain views or sensitivities. Um, and, you know, the closer you are to that, you know, idealized male, we can all kind of think of the perfect soldier in our head, right? It's like the Captain America type image, if you want. Mm -hmm. um, we can all think of that. The closer you are to that, the easier it is. The farther away you are from that, the harder it is. Um, and I think um, there are elements of that ideal that, you know, the bravery, the courage, the sacrifice, all of those elements need to be maintained within the military. But there are other things that are harmful, like the machismo, the toxic masculinity, the, you know, the, the lack of respect for women or other, or other viewpoints and, and minorities, like that stuff needs go away. And also, we need to recognize that 
good leaders don't come in one shape and size, and we need to recognize that, and we need to put different types of leaders in front of junior officers, junior members of the forces, so that's recognized, and people aren't kind of forced to adopt this one type of leadership style, which I think then perpetuates bad behavior. Uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Leah. Um, Mm -hmm. What about that whole idea? This is a fighting force. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have that mentality in order to to, and and discipline in order to uh, to uh, to uh, do what what, what soldiers and and the military have to do. Is that any excuse? Well, I think the, the counterpoint I would say is, you know, none of this behavior that we're talking about in the military right now is sexual misconduct. None of that's authorized. Mm. Right. All of that is against regulations and orders. So we're allowing people to break the rules, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. Good order and discipline is necessary, but that means across the spectrum, not for certain issues and not others. Obviously, uh, what we've seen with the Canadian Special Operations Forces Commander uh, prior to that, uh, Jonathan Vance, uh, it's one thing rank and file. What does it say when this is happening at the very, very top? And, and you know, while there were allegations against Vance, it seemed the prime minister not aware and, and he's promoted. Uh, rank and file, one thing. What about when it's top brass? Well, I think the real issue, and I, and I will say that I do think that the issues between General Daw, the Kansas commander, and, and General Vance are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of General Vance, who was responsible for leading this culture change under Operation Honor in the military when he took command, he made himself the face of changing this culture, right? but at the same time was being a hypocrite. Right. And, and so how how can anyone have faith in leadership trying to change culture when they themselves are perpetuating the bad behavior? It, it just rings absolutely hollow and is a sign to those who don't want to change that it's not being taken seriously and a sign to victims that it's not being taken seriously. So it's just it's completely ineffective. Um, and it and I will say that it feels to many like a giant betrayal to have the person who was supposed to be leading this change, who told people, you know, things will be better and this is the way it needs to be, but at the same time behaving badly themselves, like an absolute betrayal. Uh, what about the fact that uh, he, he continued to, to do well within the military as this was going on? Uh, you know, there's quotes saying he was untouchable, this sort of thing. That must resonate with the rank and file. Well, yes, I would say that, you know, the fact that, you know, we have civilian control of the military in Canada, right? Um, the military is not untouchable. They're not beyond the the people in the sense that it is an elected representative that controls ultimately and orders the military. And that that chain seems to have been broken, Right. The the minister did not keep the military accountable. He chose to ignore an allegation instead. And there's lots of speculation that this is because Minister Sajjan himself used to be subordinate to General Vance, and that may be part of it, which is a lesson learned for the future. Hmm. But Canadian people hold the military accountable through our elected officials. 
and there's been no accountability. And it seems like that chain even now is broken as we're calling for accountability, right? And, and while this is allowed to continue, people who are outside the military look at it as, as a broken organization, right? Canadians should be upset that this institution that is supposed to represent their values abroad, right? We are, the military is the number one face of Canada abroad, doing good abroad, right? Is marred by scandal, by values that are not our, that are not those of, of Canadians, certainly not the Canadians that elected this current apparent feminist government, right? We should be, the average Canadian, not just the rank and file, should be upset by this. Uh, and that was my next question was your thoughts on the prime minister not aware that this was a me too uh, situation H- how does this stay secret i don't know because quite frankly you know when i was in the military and wait i can think back to 2010 when i heard rumors about general vance and i don't know that they were true or not but there were rumors and i was just a captain i wasn't betting the man to be the chief of defense staff so I don't necessarily find it very persuasive. And I think if there's ignorance here, it was welcomed ignorance, you know, um, and it, it's truly, it's, it's I, unfortunately, it's not the right word. It's extremely frustrating. And I can tell you from talking with a lot of my friends and colleagues who are still in uniform and out, there is a seething anger and rage amongst veterans who feel absolutely betrayed by our, elected officials, and by the former CDS. Uh, the, the fact that uh, Minister Sajan said there's going to be another review into this, even though there was one not too long ago, um, what about your reaction to that? And, and again, this you know is a government that is self-proclaimed a, a, themselves as a feminist government. They're certainly uh, uh, promoting that an awful lot. Mm-hmm. How does that rest with you? Obviously, my first reaction was, you could have done this in 2016 when you first took over, right? <laughs> there was nothing preventing um, looks into how to ensure independent review and oversight of sexual uh, complaints in the military at that time. And the fact that it's taking a political scandal now to do it, obviously, is is extremely frustrating. But the work still needs to get done. And I will say that in this case, You know, the former review made a diagnosis that may have shocked some. Now we know what the diagnosis is, and it's time to figure out how to fix it. And there were very, very general and broad recommendations in the last report by uh, Justice Deschamps. But Justice Arbour, I think, has a much more broad mandate to actually recommend concrete steps and actions to move forward. and the other thing that I think that is very different now than before is who's in charge of the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, I trust in General Eyre. His comments on this issue have been very clear. Um, the choice to um, create a new command under Lieutenant General Calignan that will look at all elements of CAF conduct and culture is an important step. And the current Vice Chief of Defense Staff, Francis Allen, is also an incredibly um worthy leader and these are all things that were not in place three months ago so all of this change does make me optimistic that as long as we continue to put pressure on this issue there could be concrete change this time
Well, you really can't get any more emphasis or more focus or spotlight on someone than a Jonathan Vance. I mean, this blows the doors wide open, does it not? I hope so. Um, but I would think the fact that it, it took the government two and a half months to respond with any kind of plan means that, you know, they weren't necessarily expecting or for, or thinking they were going to have to react. Um, but continued pressure by myself, by other people who have come forward, by outstanding reporters who are continuing to spread light on this, by Canadians who are speaking out to their MPs. All of this pressure is really necessary to continue to make change in the CAF. What about other countries, other military organizations, the U.S., for example, the U.K., same issues there? How do they deal with it differently, do they? Um, I'm not an expert on the U.K., but the the American Armed Forces are dealing with something very, very similar. They Mm -hmm. did implement an external review uh, to an extent, and it was broken, but there is now a move in the U.S. Senate to create a you know a more fulsome external system, the um, for the first time the defense secretary actually appointed a senior advisor on um, equity and diversity and human capital, um, a fantastic former soldier named Bishop Garrison. Um, so there are moves to reconcile and de- deal with these issues in the U.S. as well, but um, they're not they're not perfect either. <laughs> What advice would you give uh, the Canadian military if they asked you at this point? Well, fortunately, they have asked me, so I get to tell them what I think um, <laughs> um, in, in the next uh, couple of days. Um, but there's a couple of different things. The one thing I will say is that um, I'm a product of the Royal Military College. The Royal Military College trained the majority of our junior officers um, and is kind of ground zero for where this behavior starts. And I really think that we need to reconsider how we train our officer cadets, the types of leaders that are put there to train those cadets and what kind of training they get. Because if we can um, stop this culture from ever taking, you know, ever rooting itself into new officer cadets, it will be easier down the road, I think. What advice would you give to women who are thinking of a career in the military? So this is, that's a great question. And my question is usually, what do you want to do in the military? Because I have a lot more faith in certain elements and certain trades than others, um, which I think is kind of a terrible thing to say, um, but it's true. Um, but like I said, this is the first time I've actually had real faith in the in the leadership of the Canadian Armed Forces and General Air and General Allen. And I think... I think now's the time for change. So, you know, I had a, my experience in the military gave me so much and made me who I am. And I wouldn't have ever traded that for the world, but I would, you know, provide some caution. Dr. Leah West with us, Assistant Professor and Associate Director of Admissions and Recruitment at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Uh, Leah, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated, and uh, good luck with all of this moving forward. Hopefully uh, it gets the attention it deserves. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.